0: Okay, so this is week two now of our series on spiritual warfare. Um, I think I mentioned that it's, it's just kind of generically titled as a series Spiritual Warfare because we're going to continue to go through these topics about how, how we interact with the demonic and how we uh, deal with the demonic. So this is week two now of the same topic we were on last week, which is Christians and the demonic. So this is a pragmatic week. Uh, as we think through how we deal with it, and we're going to talk about some of those questions we didn't answer uh, last week about where we go in Scripture if we want to deal with the demonic, where we can go to find the tools, and um, what the actual process should be like, what it what we can do to deal with it. Okay, but if you remember, I ended last last week talking about um, some some passages I wanted to get through, but we we didn't have time, and uh, I want to get through them. Now, at the beginning of this week, uh, because they're important. It's important to see these examples of what Jesus is doing, binding the strong man, of disarming the rulers and authorities uh, in actual action, right? So I'm going to use a couple Markan examples, a couple examples from the book of Mark. Uh, They have parallels, both these examples have parallels in the other two synoptic gospels. But uh, for whatever reason, the Markan versions have these vivid pictures, these vivid imagery that I love and that are very deeply meaningful to me. So I'm going to use the Mark version of these stories. And the first one is the story of the Gerizim demoniac. And if if you know this story, uh, you might know it as the story of Legion, right? Legion is the name that this demonic entity gives to itself. Um, So that's in Mark chapter 5. The parallel passages for Mark 5 are found in Luke 8 and in Matthew 8, okay? Luke 8 and Matthew 8, if you're looking for this story in the other Synoptic Gospels. But we will be looking at it in Mark 5 tonight. Okay, so Mark 5, verse 1. They, who's they? Jesus and the disciples. So they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he had got out of the boat, this is Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit, met him and boy if you want to hear about what an unclean spirit a demon can do to someone uh, you cannot get much of a of a more dark uh demonic tragic picture than this story right a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him met him and he had his dwelling among the tombs he lived among the tombs he was a a man who lived in the graveyard. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. What a tragic life this man was living. It says his home was among the tombs. Not a shock in, in probably the fear of who this man is and what he's doing. It says they can hear him at night and in the day, right? The villagers probably can hear him out among the tombs, screaming, and I'm sure partially in fear, and honestly knowing humans, partially in cruelty. It says they often tried to bind him with chains. This man whose life is so pitiful, they go out and try to chain him up. And yet he has this supernatural, demonic strength, and so whenever they try to chain him or shackle him, he just breaks it apart and frees himself. He tears it apart. He breaks them in pieces. And it says constantly night and day, he's tormented, screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. He just wanders around screaming and self-mutilates. He, he cuts himself with stones. Man, if you want to see how tragic this kingdom of Satan can get. Look at the agony of this man. Verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, the man ran up and bowed down before him and shouted with a loud voice. He said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Okay, verse 7, shouting with a loud voice, he said, who's the he that said? It's the man. The man said. Who is speaking though? What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. That's the demon speaking. So the demon is speaking in the man's voice. The demon is speaking in the man's voice. Okay? Jesus, it says, was trying to cast the demon out of the man. He was saying, come out. And this was the demon's response. What business do we have with each other? All right, that was the response. And he says, Do not torment me. How ironic is that phrase, right? This demon begs Jesus not to torment him. And yet... What could be a better picture of torment than what this demon is doing to this man in verses 1 to 5? Hypocrite, huh? Don't torment me, Jesus, while I continue to make this man gash himself with stones. Scream among the tombs and in the mountains. Be shackled by everyone and live out in the graveyard. The picture of torment. So Jesus, verse 9, he was asking the man, What is your name? He was asking him. It says, What is your name? And the man said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. Right? So there's a bunch of demons, is what this seems to imply. Maybe a legion of demon demons. They name themselves after that, right? They named themselves after this idea of the Roman legion. So there's a legion of demons. There's many of them in this man. Okay, And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And what's their response? Verse 17. I hid it in the, in the service. I hid it it's because I didn't want them to see what the response was, though most of us knew anyway. What's their response to this great victory of jesus this great victory of the man they hear screaming night and day gashing himself with stones the same man they've tried to chain down when they see this man sitting down clothed and in his right man the amount of compassion and and love and glory that goes to jesus is zilch nothing they ask jesus to leave Verse 17, they began to implore him, Jesus, to leave their region. Tragic. Tragic. Now, I am a fair person. I like to be fair. Whoever these herdsmen are, uh, it says they lost 2,000 sheep. Or, excuse me, swine, pigs. They lost 2,000 of them. So their livelihood uh, is probably dramatically affected. Okay, I like to be fair. Whatever the case, this this miracle was very costly to them. Their livelihood was almost certainly impacted. But more than anything, uh, this man is the. It's a clear sign of of a miracle, right? This man is in the most pitiable state, and yet now he's clothed in his right mind, and sitting down before Jesus. And yet they aren't moved with compassion. They aren't thankful. They don't have to listen to the screams anymore. They're they're afraid, so they ask Jesus to leave. Okay, let's go back. Uh, Up here. Here's how I've made sense of this in my mind. Okay. What's the tone of what the demon is saying? to Jesus. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. What does it sound like when that demon says that? My guess is the tone sounds afraid to me when I read those words. It's fearful. It knows it does not have power over Jesus. It's begging for its life, right? That's what it sounds like to me. It's It's begging, right? Don't torment me, Jesus. It's begging and it's afraid, okay? So, if it is begging and afraid, my question, verse 6, this seems like there is a lot of demonic control in this person's life. If you read the first verses. But verse 6 Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Why does the demon approach Jesus if he's afraid and begging for his life? Why does he not just run away? What's the answer to that? Okay, I'll give my answer. What I've come to think about as I've read this passage more and more is I don't think the demon runs up. I think the man runs up. I think whatever amount of control the demonic has over this man, he still has some level of autonomy. And when he sees Jesus, he sees a chance for deliverance and desires it. So the man runs up and bows before him, but the demon speaks. That's how I've made sense of these two things that seem so at odds, that he would run up and bow down before Jesus, which, weird, if he's a demon, that he would bow down, and the loud voice that's afraid. It does not make sense to me for the fearful, begging demon to run up to jesus to beg and be fearful it makes sense that he'd run away i think verse six shows us the man has some autonomy he runs up to be delivered but there's enough demonic control in his life the demon is the one who speaks to jesus but he knows the man knows jesus is his chance for deliverance so that is how i've made sense of that um So you have the the terrible response of the people, but what's the man's response? The man loves Jesus. He loves Jesus, and he's like, Lord, let me go with you. He wants to go accompany him. What's Jesus' response? Jesus' response is, no, you can't accompany me. Your job is to go home and report what the Lord has done for you. Report how he had mercy on you. This man is, is given a calling. He has an unclean spirit. It's cast out of him. He wants to go with Jesus. And yeah, of course, it's it's sad. It's sad that he doesn't get to go with Jesus. We all want him to. But Jesus has other purposes. This man has a mission. He has a calling. And it's to go home and tell people all of the great things that the Lord has done. And then to go into the Decapolis even and proclaim what Jesus had done for him, and it says everyone was amazed. Was amazed, and and who knows, many of them probably had heard heard tale of him had had known he was the man out there, had had personally experienced him. Maybe even some of the people who had tried to bind him were hearing this story of this man and what Jesus had done for him, and I think that's a beautiful. A capstone to that story is the fact that Jesus immediately gives him a calling, gives him a job, gives him a a purpose, gives him a mission. And I I just, I love that. This man was under such torment. Imagine the testimony that this would be if you saw what this man was like prior to to his freedom and after his deliverance from by Jesus. I mean, it would be unimaginable, the difference in this man's condition. Okay, so there's one example of one of Jesus' exorcisms. Okay, let's go uh, again somewhere else in Mark. Again, another good example. We'll go to Mark 9. Mark 9. Okay, this is a parallel passage also in the other Synoptic Gospels. The parallels are found in Luke 9 and Matthew 17. But we're in Mark. So we're in Mark 9. Mark 9 is the story of a little boy with a demon. Okay? Verse 14. Verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, by the way, what has just happened is that this, the, the story of the transfiguration, right? The transfiguration has just happened. Peter and John and James are all up on the mountain with Jesus. They see him transfigured into his, this image of glory, and Moses and Elijah show up, and this wonderful thing happens, and Peter's like, hey, let's just stay up here. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are gone, and they're coming down the mountain, okay? They're coming down the mountain, and when they get back to the disciples— They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Verse 15. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, "O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when the boy saw Jesus... Immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then in one of the greatest cries of faith in the New Testament, in my opinion, I love this line. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe help my unbelief when jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it you death and mute spirit i command you come out of him and do not enter him again after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When Jesus came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I love that line. I do believe, help my unbelief. That is the cry of true belief, because he can acknowledge where he's at he can acknowledge that his pain and his suffering and watching the pain of his boy has affected his belief. And he says, I believe and help my unbelief, Lord, even to believe I need your help. I need your help, Jesus. And again, what another example of the pain of this demonic possession Hey, this boy, it says it brought the boy. He's a lad. If you want to use that term, he's a lad. He's a young boy. How long has this been happening to him? It says from childhood. What did the boy do to get this demon? In the passage, what did the boy do to deserve, to earn, to to attach this demon to himself? What does it say in the passage of how he got it? The answer is it doesn't. It doesn't say how he got it. One of the things we like to do in these instances is do a lot of speculation. It doesn't say. It does say he has a spirit, but it does not say in any way that this boy earned it, deserved it, was connected to the demonic, used a Ouija board, used to you know do sacrifice, his demon in his family, his family was a, a voodoo priest. It doesn't say anything. It just says he has this demon. It gives no indication what he could have done To attach it to himself. Okay, it says he was a boy, a lad, when they brought him to Jesus. And what does Jesus ask him? He says, How long has this been going on? And his father says, From childhood. Okay, so this is a boy, and he's had it since even younger than being a boy. Does that mean a baby, a toddler? I don't know. I can't tell you. But whatever the case is, he's a young boy, he's a lad, when he's brought to Jesus with the Spirit, and he's already had it since he was in childhood. That's the father's response. He's a young boy, and even further back into his childhood, he's had it. My guess is he didn't do anything. Anything to earn this, to deserve this. I think that's one of the things we learn from this passage. The demonic does not necessarily mean that you've done something. It doesn't mean you did some wrong thing. It doesn't mean you had some secret sin. It doesn't mean that you, you know, called a demon out by holding a seance or something. Uh, You could do that, and you could get a demon from that, but it doesn't always have to be like that, and it doesn't always come from those things. And I think this story, the reason I went to this one specifically, is because I think this story shows that. This boy has had this demon since childhood. The assumption is that this is a, a Jewish family in the crowd, and that this Jewish family, you know, like most Jewish families of that day, were generally... Uh, God-fearing, law-abiding, and I that mean that as in the Mosaic law, law-abiding people. They weren't uh, doing all kinds of pagan, idolatrous, you know, child sacrifice or something that would attract the demonic. He was probably just a normal Jewish family. And, and honestly, by his cry of faith, uh, it makes me think he was even more likely to be a righteous man. So my guess is, my guess is there, there's nothing this child did. He did nothing to earn this theme. He did nothing to attach it to himself. It's just the demonic at work hurting people, uh, oppressing them, affecting them, and, and doing what demonic entities do in the kingdom of Satan. Hurting people and attaching themselves to them. So in my opinion, looking at this passage... There's nothing this child did to earn it. And that's a good thing for us to learn because we stop looking for who to blame, first of all. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't examine if there are unrepentant sins or if there is actual satanic activity, you're engaging in. If someone's going to do those things, of course they could have a demon. But we should also recognize that we don't need to look to who to blame for the issue or whatever because it's not always the case. This boy has had it since childhood. He did nothing to earn it. He did nothing to deserve it. So we've got to remember, when it comes to the demonic, we're prepared for this. This could be one of your kids. Just like this man. A child who's innocent has done nothing to deserve this and yet has a demon. That shouldn't make us afraid. It should make us ready and prepared to deal with it. Because we might have to. You might have to deal with it. Another thing I think I, I want to mention specifically, of course, if you look at the the effects of what's going on in this passage, <clears throat> it's often tied to the idea of epilepsy, right? Epileptic seizures. And I think this is an important note, because again, people, when it comes to this issue, can can go crazy on either side, right? They can can say nothing has anything to do with demons. Uh, Demons aren't even real, right? They can be naturalists. But you can also end on the other end of the spectrum, for my more Pentecostal brethren. uh, You can end up at a place where everything is demons, and there is no other reality. There is no other things that could be going on. And, and in this passage specifically, uh, he has these symptoms of, of that most people would look at and say it sounds like epilepsy, but it's clear that Jesus says this is being done by a demon, by a spirit. So we know that whatever this is, this, this is not uh, just genetic epilepsy. This is not just a, a, a disease or a, of the body or, 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 or mind, right? This is, this is actually demonic, and, and it says so, right? It says so. Jesus casts out a spirit, A, and B, it says that this, this spirit is trying to destroy him. Right? Epilepsy doesn't normally try to throw you into fires or into water to drown you. Right? <laughs> like, this is demonic. Okay? Now, that being said, we know in this passage it's demonic But if you see someone have epileptic seizures, you can't assume it is demonic. And that's what I'm saying about using discernment and using wisdom. We cannot assume that everything is demons just like we can't assume nothing is demons. There is an element of living in the community of God and that is a protection against making, uh, you know, uh, making assertions that we're not positive of, because we have other people speaking into the situations as well. And that's important. And what's important is to have that discernment, to think through all the different angles. Maybe there's a mental illness, and it's not demonic. Maybe there is um, some biological component. Or maybe it there's a mental illness, and there is a demonic empowerment that needs to be dealt with. All of these things are possible, and, and our job as Christians is not to just come down with a proclamation, it's to help people. It's to help people. And, and in order to help them, we have to know the cause. So it, it is not enough to simply say it's not demonic or it is demonic. We've got to discern that so that we can help people. Because I'll tell you, if you cast the demon out of a person with a mental illness, you do nothing for them, it will not help them. and if you uh try to get someone some some psychological help, get them into counseling when they have a demon, I'll tell you in the same vein, it will do nothing for them. They'll still have a demon, right? Our job is to be discerning and to help people, and in order to do so, we have to to, to figure out what's going on with them. Okay and that's the pastoral response to people is in order to, to help them. We, we don't just say one size fits all. Everything that looks like epilepsy is demonic. Nothing that looks like epilepsy is ever demonic. You just can't make that kind of um, assured statement because we, we don't know, and every situation is different. So our job is to be discerning. So I just wanted to say that in relation to this passage because it has these things that look like... like Things we see in our world, and yet is clearly demonic. Clearly demonic in this case, Jesus says as much. Okay. All right. So those are two passages I had wanted to look at last week um, that we didn't have time to get to. But the main uh, content of what I wanted to share for this week is this question um, that is not answered. Okay, we've been looking at these examples of exorcisms of Jesus, and what's unique about these exorcisms of Jesus is that all the exorcisms that Jesus does in, the, in all of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, not one of them is to a Christian. Not one of them is to a Christian. And why is that? Well, in part, that's because the church doesn't yet exist. Jesus has not yet died when he's doing these exorcisms, and it's not until Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit that the church comes into being. So we have this huge question mark in the New Testament that never addresses whether the demonic can affect Christians. And and let me just say, everyone understands that um, the demonic can affect Christians, as in They can lie to them. They can try to deceive them. They can try to tempt them. You know, some of these things are are things that everyone across uh, the evangelical spectrum would all agree. Demons can do that. They can try to lie to you. They can try to um, deceive you. They can try to tempt you. But this question of like, can there be a more internal reality? And I'm not even saying demon possession, but can there be this kind of, uh, influence can there be this um, demonic attachment if you want to call it can there be demonic oppression of Christians and, and it's a fraught question theologically because uh, of course the, the, the best answer the answer that we would all love to say uh, is true is that no you know Christians are perfectly immune to that uh, but the question is not what would be nice the question is what is real what is true And so we have to ask ourselves that. So the question I'm asking is, can the demonic affect Christians? And if so, to what extent? To what extent? Okay. And there's three major evangelical views that uh, surround this idea. Three major evangelical views. And so I'm going to present them. I do have a view. Uh, I'm not going to put my finger to the scale yet. Um, I'm going to present these views... Uh, unbiased and, and to the best of my ability, um, just lay them out as they are. Uh, what's important to remember too while i'm I'm saying this is is this that this is an issue like I said that is not actually addressed in scripture. So we're trying to make connections theologically. it's never explicitly said. So we're trying to make connections theologically as we look at the scriptures. But remember that there are good Christians who believe all of the three different views that I'm about to tell you. You know, I, I may believe in one of these three views, but that doesn't mean there aren't good, uh, you know, Bible-believing, strong, um, pastoral Christians doing ministry who believe the other two views. And I just want to make that clear, that there are good people doing good ministry in all three of these different views. Um, so, anyway, take that uh, as you will. That's important for me to say, because it, it is important on these issues to have unity when you can, and, and there are good people doing ministry in all of these views. But <clears throat> the three views um, basically relate to the idea of, okay, if the demonic is affecting you, what's the response? Okay, what's the response? And so these game, uh excuse me, these names of these views I'm taking uh, directly from, from Gary Brashears, okay? So here's the three names I will give you. The first view, oh, and I'm, I'm going to give you a proof text with each that they, they would kind of point to as maybe, uh, you know, this verse kind of is the proof text of what we would go to to say, hey, here's what we believe, okay? The first is called a gospel encounter, a gospel encounter, and we'll go to 2 Corinthians 6. Okay, 2 Corinthians 6:15. Go to 2 Corinthians 6:15 and you'll see this. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What is Paul's answer to that question? Paul's answer to that question is he 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 has an answer in mind right it's not just it's not just an open-ended question. He has an answer in mind, and the answer is nothing nothing. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is the name of you know one of these demonic entities uh that is, is mentioned here in Scripture in 2 Corinthians. Okay, so he's saying, what harmony has Christ with the demonic? The answer is nothing. They have no harmony. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Oddly, this one, we kind of was like, well, a lot, right? Like they they all, you know, kind of, Live the same life. They, you know, they both have kids. They both get married. They both they've got a lot in common. That's clearly not what Paul's trying to say. He's trying to say they have nothing in common. They have nothing in common. How do we know that's the case? That he that's what he's trying to say. Well, because he's sandwiched it between what harmony has Christ with Belial and what agreement has the temple of God with idols. The point he's trying to make is there's nothing in common between them. Just like there's no harmony between Christ and Belial, believers and unbelievers are completely different from one another. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. The temple of God does not agree with idols. He goes on, For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there's no connection between Christ and the demonic. No connection between unbelievers and believers. No agreement between the temple of God and idols. In the gospel encounter, which is what I'm naming this, uh, which is what Gary has named this first position, right? Gospel encounter. What's the response if the Christian is experiencing the demonic, like, say, demonic oppression? What's the answer? The answer is they're not a real Christian. They need to become a Christian. Okay? That's the answer. Become a Christian. You're not. If Christ has no harmony with Belial, if the temple of God has no agreement with idols, if believers have nothing in common with unbelievers, and you're being affected by the demonic, you're in harmony with Belial, not in harmony with Christ. You need to become a Christian. You may think you're one. You may think that you were a Christian, but you clearly are not because the harmony of Christ is not in you you're actually in harmony with Belial okay the demonic. So that would be that view's response if you're if you're a Christian and you're experiencing the demonic, guess what you're not really a Christian. Get saved that's why it's called gospel encounter. you need to encounter the gospel and actually believe in it and that'll take care of your demonic problems like that. If you become a Christian, then the demonic can't affect you anymore because all of a sudden you've been you've left having harmony with Belial and now you actually do have harmony with Christ. And so Belial will have no nothing to do with you, right? You've left idols and now you're the temple of God. Idols, demons, they'll have nothing to do with you because you're in the temple of God. Right? That's the first view. Okay, I'm not going to respond to it yet. I'm just going to lay out the view. Okay, so that's the first view. It's called gospel encounter. Here's the second view. The second view is called a power encounter. Ephesians, go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Okay, that's a good verse. A good verse for me. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Okay, this is called the power encounter. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. This word for opportunity, is there any other translations you might have heard I'm reading NASB, but is there any other translations you might have heard that use a different word there? Well, the one that's most commonly brought up is foothold. Foothold. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. The Greek word that's translated foothold or opportunity or ground is the Greek word tapas. Tapas. It's where we get the word topography, right? Like topography, like looking at all the elevations of different mountains and seeing the layout of the land. That's topography. Tapas literally just means ground, like earth, like the ground, land. It's ground you stand on. So when they translate it, do not give the devil a foothold, they're talking about do not give him any. Any ground in your life, any space to stand, any foothold, any place to mark his territory, right? That's what they're saying. So those who believe the power encounter view would say this, and and this verse kind of lays it out. There's other spots you could go to, but this verse lays it out nicely. When you sin unrepentantly, look at this, be angry and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? Meaning deal with your anger. If you don't deal with your anger, don't repent of your anger if you just let it sit in you as unrepentant sin, you're giving the devil an opportunity. You're giving him a foothold. You're giving him ground in your life. Okay? So what that means is Your unrepentant sin is actually opening up a door to Satan. And here's where it is uh, unique in its view, which is this. You actually are giving him legal authority to be there. And that's important. It's important because what they say in their view is, uh, in this view, the power encounter, what they say in their view is that The devil has legal authority, meaning even as a Christian, he has a right to be there. The demonic has a right to be there. And what's given him the right to be there? Well, your unrepentant sin. See, if you repented of your sin, he wouldn't have legal authority to be there. But if you look at Ephesians, you know, Ephesians 4.26, by unrepentant sin, you've actually given him a foothold, which is legal authority, a place to stand. So the way to get rid of a demon, uh, what, what this view would say, by the way, in relation to um, if you're being affected by the demonic, say you're a Christian and you're being affected by the demonic, what's their response? Remove the ground. Remove the ground for the demonic, right? What do you do? You repent of that unrepentant sin. The things that you are doing that are giving Satan a foothold, you need to let go of those things. You need to repent of those things. And then that removes the ground that the devil can stand on legally. His legal authority is revoked by repenting of your sin. So this is the view that... um, just like the first view tends to correspond, I'm not saying it's a one-to-one correspondence, the first view tends to correspond with more Reformed uh, churches, this view tends to correspond more with Pentecostal churches, with more charismatic churches. So th- this power encounter is, is the view where often you will you know, speak to a demon, you'll get its name, you'll learn things about it, you'll learn what sin it is standing on, what sin is in this person's life, that they are um, having a foothold because of, um, and then that way you can have the person repent, uh, and, and actually repent of that sin, and then cast the demon away. And so there's a, a big conversational piece, and um, and and they you know a good example would be they would point to say the Gerizim demoniac, right? Remember we just read it in Mark five. They would point to the Gerizim demoniac, and what does Jesus do in that passage? He asks. The demon, its name. Yes, the demon, its name. What is your name? And the demon responds, "My name is Legion, for we are many." So they would say, "You find out all this information from the demon, and then you're able to remove the ground and send the demon away, and, you know, cast it to hell, and get it out of here." Uh, but you have to remove the ground. And that's important for this view for power encounter. You're in encountering each other in power. And, and what's important about that, you have the power because you know you're with Jesus, right? You're on Jesus' team. So you have more power. But the demon does have legal power, legal authority, if there's unrepentant sin. So the point is you actually cannot cast them out without the repentance. Without the repentance of that unrepentant sin, right? So if the person is like, man, someone comes to you, they're like, man, I have a demon and I would just want to get rid of it and I hate it, and and you know you're you're helping them and you're talking to the demon, you're finding out his name, and you're like, okay, well, what's what is uh, what happened? What happened uh, for you to have legal ground in this person's life? And they're like, well, they're they're an adulterer. They're having an affair on on their spouse right now, right? <clears throat> and you're like, "Wow, like this is crazy." Is is that true? You're talking to the person now. Is this true? And they're like, "Yeah, it is true." And you're like, "Okay, well, you need to repent then and get rid of it." And he's like, "No, no, no, I don't want to repent. I, I just want you to get rid of the demon." Like, well, you're you're not willing to repent no, I I don't want to repent of my sin, I just want to get rid of the demon. In this view, it would be impossible to do that. Because the demon continues to have legal authority to be there unless the person repents. So if the person's like, you know what, I don't want to repent. I like my sin. They're stuck with the demon. You can't get rid of it. It's impossible to that demon has legal authority to be there that cannot be undone unless the person repents okay so that's that's the second view that's called power encounter and then the third view <clears throat> the third view is called a truth encounter a truth encounter so we have three now gospel encounters the first become a christian power encounter is the second remove the ground and the third is called a truth encounter. And the truth encounter, we'll go to a specific verse for, for this view. This view is, we'll go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1. 13. <clears throat> Colossians 1.13 says this. Now, in these people's view, it would be um, about identity. Okay, it's about identity. Verse 13 of Colossians 1. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness who's he If you read earlier this is the father this is the father go back to verse 12 giving thanks to the father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light for he that's going back to the father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins The Father rescued us from the domain of darkness. We're not in the domain of darkness anymore. The Father transferred us to what? We're in the kingdom of the beloved Son. Okay? So if you're a Christian, in this view, in these people's view, if you're a Christian, and you are being affected by the demonic... What are you trying to do or what, what is your response? How can you deal with it? The response is to believe your identity. Believe your identity. That is your response. Okay, and how does Colossians 1.13 speak to that? Colossians 1.13 speaks to that because we're not in the domain of darkness. The Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness. We are in the kingdom of his beloved Son, Our identity is no longer domain of darkness. We are in kingdom of his beloved son. Demons have no authority in the kingdom of beloved son. They have authority in the domain of darkness. What's the point? If you're a Christian, there can be no legal authority in your life from a demon. There can be no legal authority in your life from a demon. You are not in the domain of darkness. You are in the kingdom of his beloved son. So there can be no legal authority. So what's a demon doing affecting a Christian then? In this view. In these people's view, if a demon is affecting you, it's usurping authority. It's not legal authority. It has no right to be there. You're not part of the domain of darkness. You're part of the kingdom of his beloved son. But... If you don't believe your identity, if you're wavering, if you are sinning, let's say you are unrepentantly in sin, right? Let's go back to the adulterer example. But you are committing adultery, and you're like, you know what? I'm not repenting of my sin. But you, let's say you are a Christian. Now, obviously, there's a whole host of issues there if you're a Christian and committing adultery, right? But let's say those two things are true. You're a Christian you're committing adultery and you're in the kingdom of his beloved son right because you're a Christian you're not in the domain of darkness but man the fact that you're committing adultery it's a dark secret it's a really dark secret in your soul and so maybe a a demon comes and he starts telling you you know the these lies and demonic things and things that are painful to hear and and you keep thinking yeah maybe i do deserve this because you know i am committing adultery i have this dark secret and i'm not telling anyone and it's really dark and and maybe this demons right maybe i maybe i really don't deserve salvation maybe i, I maybe i uh maybe i'm really not saved maybe i never was saved maybe there isn't any truth to that maybe i'm going to hell right now and you're getting all these demonic thoughts The reason, in this view, that that can happen is because the demon will usurp authority if you allow it to. If you allow it to usurp authority, it will use whatever it can. They're liars and tricksters, and they're um, abusers, and, and you know they're the worst kind of beings. Right? <laughs> that's that's what part of what makes them demonic. Right. So the point is, they don't have a legal authority to be there and affect you, even with the adultery you're committing. But because you are steeped in sin, and because you're like, man, I am, even though I'm a Christian, I'm doing some bad things, you'll start to believe their lies, you'll start to, to buy into the things they're saying, and you'll stop believing in your identity that you are in the kingdom of his beloved son. You know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe I still am part of the domain of darkness. And because you are believing that, they will usurp authority that they do not actually have and remain in your life. If you actually believed who you were, even with the sin, and the demon was there, and you said, I am a kingdom or excuse me, I am in the kingdom of the beloved son. You have no right to be here. Get out. It would respond because it actually doesn't have any legal authority to be there because you actually are in the kingdom of his beloved son. You're not in the domain of darkness anymore. So in this view, the response to a Christian being affected by the demonic is to believe your identity, believe who you are. If you actually can believe who you are, you can still deal with the demonic in your life. And I I use that example of of, uh, the unrepentant sin specifically so I can separate it from the idea of power encounter, right? In power encounter, if you had the same thing, that demon would never leave because it has a right to stay there, right? It has a right to stay there because of your unrepentant sin. In truth encounter, even with unrepentant sin, if you believe your identity, if you know who you are, they might try to use uh, authority they don't really have to try and trick you but they absolutely do not have a right to stay there because you're not in their domain. You're not under their kingdom. You're in the kingdom of the beloved son, okay? In that view. All right, so there's your three views. Power encounter, excuse me, uh, gospel encounter, power encounter, and truth encounter, okay? So with those three views, I've laid them out now. I have gospel encounter. Become a Christian. That's the response to the demonic. Power encounter. Remove the ground. That's your response to the demonic. And the truth encounter, believe your identity. That's your response to the demonic. Now, having laid out these views, which of these views sounds like what you believe? Which of these views do you think is correct when you think about Scripture? If you're reading Scripture, I mean, all three of them, I had a proof text I pulled up from the Bible, right? So they're all trying to look at Bible and make sense of it, okay? So which of these views do you think is correct according to Scripture? When you study the Bible and you're looking at the wholeness of it, not just these one, two, three verses, which do you think sounds like it's correct? Which do you think it's actually what the Bible would say about the demonic and how it affects Christians? What would you say? Okay, well, I'm going to give you my view. Like I said, I wanted to present those views unbiased so that you could get a view of each of them, and there are great proponents of each. I already said that, but there are. There are great people <clears throat> doing great ministry in all three of these views. What view do I hold? I am a truth encounter person. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you my response why when I give you a, re- a response to each of these encounters. Okay? So each of these encounters I'll give a response to. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6.15. 2 Corinthians 6.15. If you go to 2 Corinthians 6.15, which you remember was the, the, um, the view for uh, gospel encounter, you go there, it says this. Remember, what harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? If you go earlier than that, read it in context, what is this passage about? Do not be bound... This is verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? This is your unequally yoked passage, right? Do not be bound together is your do not be unequally yoked. What's this passage about? It's about believers marrying unbelievers. Okay? Which is part of the reason why the what has a believer in common with an unbeliever comes up. But also what's important about this is what's going on. Why do you think Paul says do not be bound together with unbelievers? My guess is because that's exactly what people were doing. Paul is giving them a command to not be married to unbelievers if you're a Christian. And the reason is because in the Corinthian church, there were probably people who were believers getting married to unbelievers. So Paul gives them a command not to do it. So actually the point of this whole passage is not that it's impossible for these things to happen. It's that they shouldn't happen. That they shouldn't happen. It's not that it can't happen. It's that it shouldn't happen. It is physically possible for a believer to bind themselves to an unbeliever. The question isn't whether it's physically possible. It's whether it should happen, and the answer is no. I'll give you Old Testament background. Go to verse 16 here in 2 Corinthians 6. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul's answer to that question is none. But if you look at the idea of temple of God with idols, can the temple of God have idols in it? Not should it. The answer is obviously no. But can it? Let's go to the Old Testament. Ezekiel 8. Go to Ezekiel 8. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house. This is Ezekiel speaking. With the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. A man comes down. He looks like he's on fire. He grabs... Ezekiel by the hair, it says, and he, the Spirit lifts him up between heaven and earth and gives him visions of Jerusalem, right? And specifically of the inner court of the temple, okay? And now it says, behold, in verse 4, the glory of the God of Israel is there. And he says to me, son of man, raise your eyes toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. An idol of jealousy in the inner court. And this is what the glory of, of God says to him. Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary, but yet you will see still greater abominations." So the Lord brings Ezekiel to the entrance of the court and there's a hole. He digs through the wall and he sees, he says, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here inside the temple of the God of Israel. When Ezekiel enters, he sees every form of creeping thing and beast and detestable thing with all of the idols of the house of Israel carved on the walls all around And standing in front of them are 70 elders of the house of Israel, each with a censer in their hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. What does that mean? They're worshiping the idols carved on the walls of the temple. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they are saying... The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken this land. And the Lord said to him, to Ezekiel, Yet you will still see greater abominations. And then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is, um, I believe, a Canaanite god. And it's this kind of typical story of of Um, You know, when the sun would go away during winter and in the cold months of fall and winter, it's like the god was dying. And then each spring, the god would be resurrected. It's one of these pagan myths that... That the God would die and then be resurrected and die and be resurrected. And that was the idea of, of the seasons, right? When it's dark and cold, that God has died. And when it's bright and warm, the God's come back to life. And it's saying these are Israelite women sitting there crying for the death of this pagan God in the temple of the Lord. They're weeping for this pagan God. And the Lord says to him, do you see this? You will see greater abomination than these. And then he brought me into the inner court. And behold, at the entrance were 25 men and their backs are to God. Right? They're not facing the Lord. They're not facing the Lord and and the holy place. It says their faces are toward the east. And they're prostrating themselves. They're, They're bowing down. To the sun. They're worshiping the sun. And the Lord says, Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they have committed here? Not only that, they've filled the land with violence. They provoke me repeatedly. And God goes on to to say, So I'm going to deal with them in wrath. No more pity. No more sparing. They're going to cry in my ears with a loud voice and I will not listen to them. And who could blame him? Listen to the evil things they're doing in his very temple as they worship other gods in his temple. Okay, what's the point I'm trying to make? Go back to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Well, the answer is none. But can the temple of God have idols in it? Well, according to Ezekiel 8, the answer is yes. My opinion. My opinion. I'm giving. People shouldn't allow the demonic to be in connection with them as Christians. But they can. They can. Christians should not allow demonic presences or demonic influence into their life. But is it possible for them to? Yes, it is. And I think that's what 2 Corinthians 6 is talking about. Listen, you shouldn't do this, but you can. right? You shouldn't be bound together with unbelievers, but you can be. It's possible to, but you shouldn't do it. It's possible for the temple of God to have idols, but it never should. And then he goes on to say, right? You are the temple of the living God, right? You are the temple of the living God. You shouldn't have any connection with idols. But just like Ezekiel 8, it's possible to. It's possible to. Okay. There's my response to the, the gospel encounter. Okay. Now on to power encounter. My response to power encounter. We'll go to Ephesians 1. And this, to me, lays out the difference between uh, the two, I think, the clearest. Go to Ephesians 1, verse 19. This is going to give you some background here about um, Christ, and then we'll go on to talking about us in connection to him. Okay, Verse 19, second half of it. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he bought, brought about in Christ. This is we're talking about the Father. The Father brought about the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Okay, what's the point of this verse? The point I'm trying to get out of it is this. Where is Jesus? Jesus is at the highest position in all of the universe, the right hand of the Father. It says he is seated there. The Lord, the Father, raised Christ from the dead and then seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus has the highest position in all of the universe, and all of creation, right? And anything that has ever existed, Jesus is at the pinnacle of all of it. It's He's far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come forever. That's where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, <clears throat> that's the point I wanted to make there. Go to chapter two, verse four still in Ephesians, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and... Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay. Christ Jesus, in verse 19 of chapter 1, 20, excuse me, verse 20 of chapter 1, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Verse 6 of chapter 2, we are seated with Christ. So where are we seated? We're seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. Okay. That's what it says. Jesus is seated at the right hand and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Just like Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, we are seated there with him in the heavenly places. And where is that seat that we are seated with him at? It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. My point, my point is this. I don't think any demonic rule, authority, power, or dominion can ever have legal authority over us if we are seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. If we, according to this passage, have been seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father, far above all power and rule and authority and dominion, Who could possibly have legal authority over us? What demon could hope to find his station above Jesus Christ and where we are seated with him? My opinion, the answer is none. There's no way. There's no way. Jesus is seated at the pinnacle of everything. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. So, we are over their authority; they can't have authority over us that 's what Colossians one is saying too right we 're no longer under their authority because we 're not in their kingdom we're in the kingdom of the beloved son, and the kingdom of the beloved son, where Jesus is seated is at the right hand of the Father, the pinnacle seat of everything, and we're seated with him, according to Coloss- excuse me according to ephesians two six so that 's why I would say there is no legal authority a demon can have in a Christian's life. If you are a true Christian, they cannot have legal authority over you. Why? Ephesians 2.6, you're seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Okay, That's what I would say. So, with that being the case, like I said, according to my view, you have to believe your identity because even though you're seated with Jesus at the right hand of the father and they can't have legal authority. Man, if you don't believe who you are, if you believe you're still in the domain of darkness even as a Christian, if you believe that yeah, you know what I'm 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 really not that holy. I'm not a good person. I'm just I'm nothing but the worst of worst of everyone. I'm I'm just too stupid, too fat, too ugly, too you know, you believe all these things about yourself. Demons love that. Demons will use that to their advantage. If you try to cast out a demon because you know you have authority in Jesus, but you actually don't believe you have that authority in Jesus, they'll just stand against you. They won't respond because they they know that you don't actually believe the authority you have. They don't believe, that they know that you do not believe the authority you have in Him. But if you can believe who you are, if you can believe Ephesians two six, that since I'm a Christian, I am seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and there is no authority over me for the demonic. If you believe that, demons will respond because they can recognize your authority. They recognize true authority. But if you don't believe it, why would a demon believe you? You know, why would a demon respond to authority you don't even believe you have? You have to know the truth of this. And, And that's why studying this issue is so important too. Because we have to know it. We have to believe it. We have to be able to go to Scripture and say, I know this is true. The Lord has told me it is true. So that we can believe it so that the demonic will respond to the authority we have in Jesus. Okay? But like I told you, they'll lie to you. They'll they'll try to trick you. They'll try and get you to doubt yourself, try to get you to doubt the authority you have. You have to know the truth. You have to believe the truth. And they will respond. Okay? That's why uh, I believe the truth encounter field. Okay, last thing. I know I'm running long as I am known to do. Last thing. How to deal with the demonic in your own life or someone you love or someone you're helping's life. Okay. Where would you go in scripture to learn how to deal with the demonic? What scripture would you go to? Obviously, we want to go to Jesus, right? Jesus is the model, the example of how to live our lives. So we want to go to Jesus. Okay, where would we go for the prime example of Jesus interacting with the demonic? In my opinion, why not go where he deals with the head of demons? We go to Matthew Matthew 4. Matthew 4, go to the temptation. Right? Jesus and Jesus is actually tempted by the devil himself. And Jesus gives us a model of how to deal how to deal with uh, the demonic in this passage, I believe. okay So Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go through this faster, and that's unfortunate, um, and I'm going to give you the steps, but uh, I won't have as much time to comment on the passage. He then became hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. <clears throat> what does Jesus do in response to the demonic? He quotes scripture. There's three steps. Three steps. He quotes Scripture, is the first one. He quotes Scripture and he does it out loud. Out loud, he quotes Scripture. It is written. He says this. He answered and said, He says it out loud. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quotes Scripture out loud. When uh, Gary was teaching us these principles in class, the class I took on this topic, um, I kind of thought maybe we could only quote from Deuteronomy because Jesus only quotes from Deuteronomy in this passage. But uh, he, G- Gary assured me that it can be anywhere in the Bible. So, um, but if you really, if you really need that extra oomph, maybe go for Deuteronomy. Uh, <laughs> but what the point is is you need to have some truth. You need to have some truth to lay out. You know when a de- when a demonic entity is telling you, you know what? You're still part of my kingdom. You're still under my control. You're never going to be free of me. I'm always going to be here. What power do you have over me? Those kind of lies, you got to have some truth that you can speak out loud. And in this example, a good verses are verses, some of these verses we've been looking at over these last two weeks. Colossians 1.13 is a great truth that I think speaks directly to the heart if a demon is getting you to question your identity. No! You can say no! For he has rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And when you say that out loud and you believe it and you hear the words of truth and you think about them and you reflect on that reality that that is true, the Father moved you out of their power. They have no power over you anymore. You are in the kingdom of his beloved Son. And when you believe that and when you speak that out loud, what's the second thing you do? What does Jesus do after the third time? He says, go, Satan. Satan commands Satan to leave. Command the demon to leave. Speak scripture out loud and command the demon to leave. And if you believe in that authority, it will go. And you know what? Jesus does it multiple times, right? He doesn't say leave multiple times, but he's quoting scripture out loud. If it's not going to respond to you, keep quoting scripture. Keep telling it to leave. It will respond. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't become uh, weary. It will respond. The demonic entity will respond. Quote scripture out loud. Tell it to leave. Tell the demonic presence to leave. And then what's the third step? This is my favorite language. Gary, <laughs> Gary uh, uses this terminology, so I'll leave his terminology in. It says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Gary's step three. Is do Jesusy stuff. <laughs> do Jesusy stuff, right? We can't command angels to come and minister to us. We can't make some uh, appearance of angels to, to do something nice for us. So Gary says, do Jesusy stuff. Do something that reminds you. Of the Lord, of that makes you feel joy that connects you to Him. Put on a worship's uh, a CD, you know. Listen to some songs. Put in your earbuds and listen to worship. Uh, go outside and enjoy a beautiful day. Call someone on the phone that you love, who know, who you know will encourage you, who will lift you up. Uh, do something Jesusy. That's what Gary would say. Okay, those are your three principles. If you are dealing with the demonic and you want to deal with it, you quote scripture out loud. You tell the demon to leave. And then you go do some Jesus-y stuff. Okay, that's your steps to deal with the demonic personally in your own life or in the life of someone you love or someone you're trying to help. Okay, so that's all I have for you this week. I went extra long. Uh, I hope this has been informative. And um, thanks for being here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you did rescue us. For those of us who are Christians, we are no longer in the power of the domain of darkness. We're in the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so we're grateful for that reality today. Lord, would you please help us to be the people you want us to be. Help us to learn how to deal with these issues so that we can help those who who are struggling with things that uh, maybe many churches would never uh, have any teaching on, that, that many people would not know how to deal with. Uh, Lord, we want to help people. We want to see people set free. And so I pray that uh, as people listen to this, they would take it to heart and that they would be changed by it and that they would have uh, an equipping of how to deal with the demonic as Christians so that we can go out and free people from the God of this world and the evil that he does so that they could be plundered out of his house and brought back um, as plunder into the kingdom of your beloved son. We're grateful that we too were taken out of his house, that we were taken out of his kingdom. Thank you for doing that, Father. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.